Welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shade. Countless examples of the crossover between intelligence, social engineering, pop culture, you name it. All the way back to the, the origins of Hollywood itself, they were filming war propaganda when Hollywood started. It's, it kind of got its start with Howard Hughes' movies that were overt war, war propaganda. You know, if you've ever seen Martin Scorsese's The Aviator with Leonardo DiCaprio, he's playing Howard Hughes, and you see that at the beginning of the movie where, you know, he's kind of filming these big blockbusters of his day, putting all his own money into it, but in reality, he was doing that before because he was working with Pentagon. The origins of Hollywood, uh, or at least the studio system, was different, you could say, mobsters. There were families that were not really they had left like a Russia Ashkenazi type families and they, they tried to set up theater companies and they found out that the camera was a lot, you know, spicier than trying to do theater. Ladies and gentlemen, with us on the show today is Jay Dyer. He is the author of Esoteric Hollywood 1 and 2. He is known for his numerous appearances on Tinfall Hat and many other podcasts, including his own appearances on Rockfin. He's got a channel on Rockfin. You can find him there and stay up to date. Jay, how are you? Doing great, dude. Thanks for having me. How are you? Yeah, I'm fantastic. It's really an honor to have you on the show. You know, so much of what you do is kind of lost on me because, quite honestly, not really a big movie guy, but hmm. partly because of your work, because I understand how much symbolism and programming goes into movies. So I've made the choice to just withdraw from that. Personally, that makes me probably a strange guy. My co-host will tell you that, but yeah. you know, no, there's definitely advantages to, you know, kind of getting away from a lot of that pop culture. I think it can really kind of stunt your, you know, intellectual growth for sure. If you consume too much. Yeah, and well, and that's my point is like I've I've taken that inspiration from guys like yourself who do the research and make mm. the connections and kind of you know lay it out. And now I feel pretty confident in that choice of like not watching television, not going to the movie theaters. Every now and then I'll catch something that's like a yeah. couple years old, 
but for the most part, you know, right. uh, I think your work is really, really interesting and captivating to a lot of people and probably wakes them up from that programming. So what did that for you? You know, when did this journey begin for you, Jay? Yeah, well, that's by the way, that's kind of why I wrote that book because I was always looking for a way to find means that I could connect with people that would wake them up. I mean, obviously the arts are one of the best ways to do that. And so much of the arts is geared towards kind of keeping people dumbed down. And, and as I said, stunting their flourishing. So I tried to find a way to kind of ride the wave of things in pop culture to, as you said, wake people up. And it's, I think it's been fairly, it's, it's been a lot more successful than I would have thought. And it began because I, I grew up as a dude interested in the arts. I was always involved in drama team, that kind of stuff in high school. And I was took all the art classes I could. I always wanted to be theater stage kind of guy. And as I got older, I got more into philosophy and into more serious level stuff, I guess you could say, when I got into college. And that's around the time I started reading books about American history, the United Nations, communism, Marxism, Freemasonry, the kind of the history of where this country comes from, out of the Enlightenment, the philosophy of the Enlightenment. And I got into some other religious stuff that kind of touched on conspiracy and the esoteric occultism and that kind of stuff. So I just kind of started reading, saw a bunch of documentaries back when Google Video was new. I don't know if anybody remembers Google Video, but there was all these documentaries. And I used to plow through those. It was around 2003. I was watching Alex Jones. I was watching Burmese's Loose Change. So that kind of shook my world. And I, I went further down the rabbit hole that I was kind of already a little interested in, read a lot about the history of secret societies. And then when I was doing college, I wanted to focus all of those areas into something that was kind of like a cross discipline topic. So I was looking for something that would, that would touch on geopolitics, conspiracy, Hollywood, all of that at once. And the more that I studied like James Bond and Ian Fleming and all that kind of stuff, I realized that he was encoding a lot of his own missions and his own experience into the Bond novels. So I was blogging a lot around that time. And that's what led to kind of collecting a whole bunch of essays. I'd written hundreds and hundreds of essays and I just collected them into a book and published the first book. And then that led to a second book. And so that's how it started, was just kind of writing a lot of essays. And then I got into podcasting and doing more and more video stuff. So it's been a long, wild journey of the last, I don't know, 12 years of, of doing this. Yeah. And it's really cool to hear that you, you know, started listening to Alex Jones way back then. And now you actually, what is it, every other Friday or every Friday you host the- yeah, Every uh, couple of weeks, yeah, they asked me to host. And so, yeah, that was kind of a- a, a dream come true in a way because I, you know, Alex is one of the first people that I've heard back in 2003 really going into this stuff. And then I heard Burmas. So, to, you know, to be on studio in studio with Alex and to be filming stuff and to, you know, to be doing interviews with Burmas, it's, it's all kind of like a dream come true for sure. Yeah, no, that's really stellar. It's surreal. Man. It's surreal for me. Definitely. Yeah. No, I, I can relate. I mean, I went from being a huge fan of Sam Tripoli to kind of similar thing, being on yeah, a show and now exactly. working for him, you know, and it's, yeah, I can relate. It's, it's awesome, man. So you mentioned Ian Fleming and, you know, this is somebody who came up in my research of Aleister Crowley, you know, Ian Fleming was inspired to some degree by Aleister Crowley, but, right. you know, it's pretty obvious after learning so much from you that, the intelligence agencies from the beginning 
we're kind of behind a lot of what we see the infrastructure of today's media, you know, whether you're talking about the news, whether you're talking about the movie industry or even television. I mean, where is this connection most clear that you found? There's a lot of key figures that you could point to where it comes to the four. It's been there forever. It was just kind of hidden. And and now it's kind of all in the open, right? So, I mean, everybody knows that, you know, Jay-Z, Beyonce, you know, they promote their own kind of, I guess, pop version of Crowleyanism or whatever. But there have been a lot of auteur filmmakers and kind of fringe filmmakers like Kenneth Anger that have been around for a long time that have influenced people on the fringe of Hollywood. And he himself, of course, was a, a you know, devotee of Crowley. Most people probably have heard of Lucifer Rising and the fact that you've got, you know, members of the Rolling Stone or, or Mick Jagger appears in the film, as well as some of the people in the, the Manson crew, you know, being directly connected. So there's always been this weird thing bubbling kind of as an undercurrent in Hollywood. And you can even go back to like films that were chosen for occult purposes, even all the way back to Metropolis, Fritz Lang's Metropolis is, is a very esoteric occultic film. More recent, well, maybe in the in the middle of the of the century of the century, you could look at something like uh, Wizard of Oz, which has a lot of connotations with mind control, MK Ultra. It was used in a lot of sort of brainwashing sessions that different MK Ultra doctors would, you know, unwittingly dose people with drugs. And that's based on Theosophy. So Theosophy is, of course, a kind of esoteric school influenced by Madame Blavatsky, who I kind of think was another British spy, mm. uh, kind of like Ian Fleming. So, and Crowley himself was in my five asset. A lot of people don't know that, but if you read Dr. Richard Spence's book, which my publisher publishes that book, Secret Agent 666, I, I did an interview with him a few years ago, and he goes really into detail, you know, exactly pointing out the, the background of Crowley and, and the work that he did during World War One, especially, and then some stuff for them in World War Two or to basically to trick uh, Rudolf has to fly into to Scotland. So all kinds of crazy stuff like that. And then I kept turning up, you know, details of cases and like Hollywood murders, like uh, the Black Dahlia, where you have a ritual murder that's, you know, famously, it was a Brian De Palma movie, which a lot of people don't like that movie. It's, it's, it's in the vein of Eyes Wide Shut. So if a person is interested in this topic, you could watch something like Black Dahlia or listen to some of the interviews of uh, George Hodel, excuse me, Steve Hodell, who's the son of George Hodell that most people think was the one that was that was doing this. And he was in a ring of kind of popular directors like John Huston and actors, Man Ray, the famous artist. So, I mean, there's many, many, many examples of Crowleyanism and his influence in pop culture. And then when I noticed that Ian Fleming was basing villains like Le Chiffre, the you know, the guy in Quantum of Solace who has a messed up eye, or if you think about Blofeld, the you know bald Blofeld guy, I mean those are kind of composites, right? Based on uh, Crowley in part, so he pops up a lot. I, I went deep into that. There's many other cases of figures even beyond in Fleming. There's Dennis Wheatley, who was another famous British intelligence operative and occult fiction writer. He wrote famous books, one of which is uh, stars uh, Christopher Lee. And the villain in that is also based on Crowley. So th this is actually, a lot, the it's called The Devil Rides Out, which is a, a fun 60s occult movie if you've never seen it. But there's a lot of instances of this, a lot of cases of this. So, you know, if you think of that, or even, even in the music genre, you have David Bowie, you know, being very into the Golden Dawn for a while. Crowley was in the Golden Dawn for a while, which is another kind of magical order. A lot of pop stars nowadays are witches. So, I mean, this it's everywhere if you kind of know what you're looking for, but... 
yeah, I'll stop there. No, yeah, and you're bringing to mind uh, past guest Chris Knowles, I think, yeah. mentioned this, you know, occurrence with David Bowie where he saw the UFO not too much long after doing this kind of, you know, chant and, and right. prayer for the UFO with him in the audience. And, yeah, it's it's strange to see how certain people use these occult ideas symbols to prop themselves up i wonder how far this goes back because theater itself is very you know you can look at shakespeare and i mean even down to shakespeare's identity there's so much mystery involved with him and that's such a huge huge institution within the theater especially in the west right so i wonder how far back that goes because obviously you know the bread and circus idea emperors trying to keep their people very passive the the idea of the art of, of theater i think that plays into it yeah, that's been known for a long time. You can go all the way back to the Greeks and I'm sure the ancient world prior to that, where you had theater being used as a means to kind of indoctrinate. I mean, this is one reason. I'm not saying he's right in, in this argument, but it's one of the reasons that Plato said that you should control the arts is because if you don't control the art, arts, people will be led crazy. <laughs> They'll go nuts with you know their passions basically being stirred up through through the arts and so he even plato understood that's is what i'm trying to say but i mean nowadays it's like pretty much across the board the arts quote unquote serve you know vast corporate interests totally i think that the fortune 100 fortune 500 pretty much can determine and have they have to say so in terms of the direction that the arts go social engineering is you know the, a big part of that and there are even, you know, movies that kind of make this point. You can watch something like Wag the Dog, where you've got movies being made to sell a war. Uh, they hire a director to, you know, basically film a fake, <laughs> fake war footage, fake, fake, uh, fake footage. And, you, you know, the, even comedies point this out, like Josie and the Pussycats, where you basically have the deep state is, is controlling the arts and basically instilling indoctrination into people. And then you go and you watch, you know, recruitment videos with pop stars. Remember when Katy Perry made that pro-military video where she was like, she left her boyfriend and joined the military. It was just like such obvious propaganda. But I mean, that, that's, it's been going on the whole time if you if you know where to look. And yeah, I mean, there's just countless examples of the crossover between intelligence, social engineering, pop culture, you name it. All the way back to the, the origins of Hollywood itself, they were filming war propaganda when Hollywood started. That's, it kind of got its start with Howard Hughes's movies that were overt war, war propaganda. You know, if you've ever seen Martin Scorsese's The Aviator with Leonardo DiCaprio, he's playing Howard Hughes and you see that at the beginning of the movie where, you know, he's kind of filming these big blockbusters of his day, putting all his own money into it. But in reality, he was doing that for because he was working with the Pentagon. Yeah, yeah, no, and I mean, even down to like filming nuclear tests and whatnot, like yeah, the, the Canyon, yeah. yeah, these these the camera itself was invented by the military. You know, that's something that dawned on me. Like, it's like wow, like what was this being used for? Oh yeah, they were filming World War Two. They were filming World War One. Like they weren't doing anything uh, artistic with it until there is money to be laundered in that industry. Am I am I wrong there? I mean, like you have this kind of elite group of people who have uh, money that they make illegally and they need a place to put it and they want to, you know, start their life over in this new grand Hollywood land, you know, I mean, 
is there is there much to say about that as far as like the drug trafficking connections in movies? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the origins of Hollywood, uh, or at least the, the studio system, was different. You could say mobsters. There were families that were not really. They had left like Russia, Ashkenazi type families, and they they tried to set up theater companies. And they found out that the camera was a lot, you know, spicier than trying to do theater. And so it, it did at times function as kind of a mob connected thing. And there was only, you know, a handful of studios at the beginning. And I don't, I don't think that most of those people were really connected to any religion per se. But what happens over time is that you do get mafia characters that are directly involved in it. You get Bugsy Siegel, you get Meyer Lansky, you get other mafias as well literally stepping into and and getting a hand in the movies that are made in the pictures and you know straightening out people that aren't paying their debts or whatever so that there's and Bugsy played that role he was he was the mafia's guy in Hollywood yeah he was their enforcer he could control unions and that kind of stuff and so there's even movies that demonstrate this where you you watch something well if you watch the movie Bugsy with Warren Beatty it's, it's pretty good it actually shows this but and then that money would go into uh, building Las Vegas as well. So if you watch that, it, Meyer Lansky and Bugsy, Bugsy is the one that comes up with the idea to create Las Vegas. So that's all the history of that. And then the the military is interested even in the mob because the mafia and the military in many cases and, and intelligence agencies work together. This is a whole other domain that I've recently gone into, which is connections between naval intelligence CIA and the mafias. <laughs> they, they work together many, many, many times. Even the CIA, for example, sort of contracting out to use the mafia as uh, killers, contract killers to get to take care of people that they, they wanted killed. So yeah, it's, it's just a giant rabbit hole that you can go in a million different directions. And even to the point where you've got famous actors and actresses that were spies and informants, right? I mean, yeah. Um, now, even into even into professional sports, this is another arena we, we forget too. There's been plenty of pro sports people that were working for the OSS, like Mo Berg. There was uh, there's a movie with Paul Rudd. Catcher was a spy because he was a, a, a baseball catcher. There was Julia Child, the famous television cook. She worked for the OSS. I mean, there's countless instances of this of people being informants who were A-list actors. And I think that even still today, I think a lot of the A-listers are probably on the down low working for the CIA. Yeah. And when we do see spies and uh, espionage characters in movies, they're often portrayed in a heroic way. I think that's, you know, pretty obvious the intentions there, you know, but aside from that, there are actual, you know, occult dimensions to the technology that actually allows for a movie to take place right the amount the frame rate things like that these are calculations that were made to induce a sort of hypnotic state through which people can be more easily programmed i mean one example of this is the night of the living dead showing right the first showing of the night of the living dead people were so disturbed by it they actually had like physical sicknesses and some people theorize i don't know if uh there's actual evidence of this there probably is that the military was not just playing a horror movie they were testing sonic equipment in that theater and it had this nauseating effect on people 
Yeah, same similar studies were going on with Hitchcock's films when Psycho was played, and you know you had Norman Bates stabbing what's her face. That people ran out of the of the theater upset, freaked out. They'd never seen anything like that, and that was being studied as well. And so they learned that you could traumatize people through film and and really desensitize people, brutalize them. Theater brutality as the word. So yeah, you're absolutely right. That's been done. And nowadays it's been done in an even more, you know, intensely scientific way where they can track, you know, where your eye is and what the best way to basically shock your central nervous system through different scenes in the films. Right. Which is why I'm, again, confident in my position not to watch a horror movie. Some people might say like, oh, well, you're scared. It's like, no, I just realized that there is a traumatic effect that takes place there that I'd just rather not have to unpackage that, you know, like I, I'm pretty confident yeah. in my myself and I just don't want to throw that into the mix, you know, and, and thanks to folks like you, it's a pretty obvious decision to make. But, you know, going further into this stuff, you see on Instagram a lot, you know, especially since the election season and everything that happened with Q, uh, you see a lot of like memes and Instagram posts that just make it seem like every celebrity is a part of, you know, some big occult practice, which, you know, what do you think the truth is there? Cause I, I'm sure there are celebrities that are a part of it, you know, and it's very obvious if you look deep enough, but there are probably others where it's not obvious at all. You know, like in the case of Robert De Niro, you know, he's had some connections that I've heard about. I don't know how true they are, but, you know, just from his movies alone, it doesn't seem like there's much symbolism in Meet the Fockers or, you know, any other movies like that. What, what's your take on that? Well, there is some pretty wild symbolism in Hide and Seek where he plays a a father who's tormenting a daughter, Dakota Fanning, and and it, it relates to alternate personalities and childhood trauma. So there are wow. such, some, some cases of him being in films like that. But yeah, I don't know about anything to do with a lot of the specifics. I do recall reading that Natalie Portman's grandmother worked, I think grandmother worked for British intelligence. I, I know that obviously Jennifer, Jennifer Garner openly as a kind of a publicist you know person for the cia she did she did that kind of public work for the cia angelina jolie has been trained for different films by actual cia operatives like melissa melee when she was being trained for the movie salt and it, but i mean angelina jolie george clooney they're members of the council on foreign relations so i don't think it's a stretch to say that they are probably connected to intelligence work in some capacity or in some function and if you think about it, it makes sense i mean these are people who are going to have access to a lot of places that most people won't right they're going to be meeting uh, powerful people and doing all kinds of things all around the globe that most people won't be able to do and don't have access to so that's i think what's going on there and it's it's, it's just more prevalent than people think right and that's partly why there's so much cult stuff not occult but cult stuff in hollywood there's so many cults i mean it's it's not like everybody necessarily is part of the same cult but i mean you've got i mean just i mean i wrote a whole book on you know just all of these different connections of people being involved in cults all kinds of family you know rose mcgowan river phoenix they come out of the children of god cult you've got tony braxton the singer she came out of a of a, of a cult you've got all of the cult, all the Hollywood people into Kabbalah, right? Madonna and all, all her crowd. 
Ashton Kutcher, all these people that were into Kabbalism. You've got pop stars like Britney Spears, you know, into Kabbalism, supposedly. I mean, people like Katy Perry, probably some level of witchcraft she seems to be interested in. You've got, again, everybody knows about Crowleyanism in Hollywood. A lot of Hollywood and pop star people into Crowley, big fans of Crowley. So it's all over the place, but it doesn't require that everybody be involved in necessarily just one cult, right? I mean, you got Sammy Davis Jr. He's in the Church of Satan, right, with Anton LaVey hanging out with Michael Aquino, right? The famous satanic military general. And that that brings us back to the military. And that's something I was thinking about asking you before. Can we get a little bit deeper into that? Because I've heard about Colonel Michael Aquino. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, you know, how much of that influence played into these mind control testing, you know, all this psyop warfare that when I was a kid and I was like interested in the military, I was like, oh, look at these cool, like, trucks with like radar beams on the back of them you know but now i'm like no like this is uh spiritual warfare quite literally yeah and and the thing about aquino is if you read his books he actually says that like he's he understands that all of reality is psi war mind war spiritual war and so he wrote books about applying the principles of black magic ancient egyptian sorcery to the military's psychological warfare doctrine. Another essay that he wrote that's really famous is from mind war to from psi war to mind war. And it's his doctrine that he set forth for the army's uh, psychological warfare strategy. And what you notice from that is that it's not just about targeting the enemy or the enemies of America. It's the normal population is the enemy. And so it's a very elitist philosophy. Obviously, he's he's an elitist in his mind. He's the premier magician and Satanist of the 20th century. And so, yeah, he rose to a pretty powerful position in the military, wrote the the doctrine that, that the army, you know, went with, which actually discusses things like frequency manipulation. It mentions uh, directed energy weapons. It mentions atmospheric spraying, right? So all of these techniques actually come up in his you know, what people think is a crazy conspiracy. It's, it's all in his doctrine of psychological warfare that he wrote for the army. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's really sinister stuff. And it really makes this kind of like, you know, skeleton artwork that they flaunt and all this kind of like, you know, you see it on the military patches. It adds another dimension to it because these right. are like, these are real deal sigils, you know, and they're getting these soldiers who, for the most part, you know, come from impoverished blue collar communities. They're just looking for something to do, probably brainwashing the thing. They're helping their, their country out, you know, in some shape or form. And I think there is truth to that. There is some great people out there who have done good work, but you know, in that, in that structure, obviously they come out worse for wear. I mean, look at the state of most veterans in this country. They're addicted to drugs and, you know, they're the best candidate to, to look at they're because the they're, they're the first people that are, yeah they're the first people that are experimented on right right exactly and we, we know that from MK Ultra we know that from Vietnam so yeah absolutely Agent Orange right all that anthrax testing that they did on the soldiers I mean they're the first ones that get the experimental vaccines you know all of this stuff is is done first to the military because when you join the military they own you yeah yeah no and that's go for it Chris. I was going to say, do you think that like every actor is kind of like associated with this cult stuff or could there, could they be like 
in a situation where they're doing playing their part and it's more like the director is like not like making them unknowingly well that's what i was trying to say about different cults right no i don't think every actor is part of a cult i mean yeah different people are in different cults but there's one power structure that's behind a lot of the same cults is what i'm trying to get at i mean it yeah. doesn't matter whether you're in the new age or whether you're a kabbalist or whether you're you know going to madonna's kabbalah temple or whatever or going across town to anton LaVey's, you know church of satan it's it's the same power structure that is in the background of all of these kinds of creepy cults but I don't think that most of the people involved in that kind of stuff, they don't really know what's going on most of the time. You know, I don't think Katy Perry is that sophisticated. She doesn't really seem to know what's going on in the world. Too, you know what I mean? She's not some kind of like mastermind geopolitical genius. But I think that people that get into the darker stuff maybe see a little bit more of, you know, what's really going on. People that get into the, the hardcore satanic stuff, the Crowleyan stuff, because you do get more a little, you know, a little, the more degenerate it is, the more kind of higher up the totem pole it gets because they want people to do more degenerate things, right? Because it's part of their ritual uh, sacrifice in a way is to, you got to give up yourself, your soul, do more degrading things to degrade other people because that's part of the great magical work. I mean, it's a system where you're destroying others so that you can be empowered. Wow. Yeah, and, and this is where I, I wanted to get to in the conversation, because in my mind, you know, after studying guys like Manly P. Hall and, and these other hermetic teachings, Gnostic teachings, there's this idea that secret societies have functioned in a benevolent way to kind of insulate truth and knowledge from the, you know, burning of Alexandria style empires of the world, right? And now over the past 150 years, it seems like secret societies have taken a flip turn and are, you know, for the most part, operating under that secrecy to do evil rather than insulate good from evil. Is this something you agree with? Do you think that secret societies have always kind of fostered this uh, power structure of control and, and evil, uh, even satanic influence? Where, did, where do you think that begins? Well, I'm sure it does. Again, yeah, it goes back to the ancient world. You know, when we read Plato, you know, Plato talks about the fact that Socrates learned everything that he knew from the priests in Egypt and that they had a secret society that he had to go learn from. So that goes back to the ancient world. We know that governments utilize secret societies for the purpose of espionage and trafficking in secrets. The Freemasons for many centuries functioned as kind of the intelligence apparatus of the British Empire. So, and that's not even conspiracy, that's just mainline history. So there's books written on that. So I think just from a practical perspective, they just, they're a part of the world because they're, they're, have always been a need for rulers to traffic in secrets. And so you have spies, but you can also have societies of spies that do that kind of stuff. In fact, I'm kind of in the middle of a famous book that's about that very topic by a famous historian. It's a really rare book and it's called the origins of intelligence agencies in the middle East. And so this is a, wow. Um, famous Byzantine historian who is writing this book about the origin of intelligence services. And it comes out of places you wouldn't expect, like the kings in the ancient world, the, the mailman. The mailman was the spy. 
And if you think about it, that makes perfect sense because the mailman is the one delivering the king's message, right? So it makes sense that he's got to be protected and he's got to have secret words, codes, ciphers, right? This kind of stuff. Yeah. So, you know, there's kind of un unexpected arenas that secret societies relate to and come out of that, you, that, that are just kind of part of the functioning of the way the world is. And they're not all necessarily bad because sometimes it is necessary, like in warfare, to have secrets. Uh, you don't want the enemy getting your secrets. But at the same time, in the modern world, yes, I would agree that Freemasonry, most of these occult societies are kind of fronts, cutouts. I mean, there are some people that are seriously into the satanic dark side of it, but a lot of it's also people being used and used by higher level handlers. A lot of cults, especially as I've delved into the serial killers, a lot of the serial killers were part of cults. A lot of killers, contract killers are in cults. And so they can be used because there's more Machiavellian, more devious people that are above them that are smarter, <laughs> that will use these people. Kind of like how you've probably heard of false flags, right? Where they get a, they dupe a person, right? And this person's really invested in this cause and then they get them to go do something. And then they're the patsy, right? Um, right? And they may just be a low IQ person that was sort of hyped up into doing some kind of terror event or who knows what, right? By the intelligence services, entrapment kind of stuff. Yeah, Lee Harvey uh, Oswald was, you know, exactly, famously, yeah. you know, someone who really cared about his country and then, you know, got blamed for killing the president despite all evidence. Yeah, and, and there was a similar case in the 1993 World Trade Center with Imad Salam. He was entrapped and he recorded, you know, being entrapped. And so he actually got off of his prison sentence because the, the case fell apart because they had entrapped him. But many, many cases of this, and this is just, again, part of sort of warfare and espionage intelligence operations. And that's what I'm saying is that in the same way that you've got people that intelligence agencies kind of dupe, you can have the same thing going on in cults. And uh, even this has just now come out with like the uh, Netflix doing their take on Maury Terry's book on Son of Sam. It's called Sons of Sam is the, the recent documentary that's just come out, which kind of vindicates this thesis because Berkowitz always said that they were, he was part of a network of killers and people that have been raised and trained to do this kind of stuff. And so they had this belief, oh, we're serving, you know, Satan, whatever. But in reality, they were just being used to like contract kill people. <laughs> and they might not even know that, right? Like the imagine like there's powerful people that want somebody dead. And then a devious cult leader works for that person. And, you know, the rich guy's like, hey, could you take some of your idiot followers to maybe get them to sacrifice a couple people that are causing me some harm in terms of my business deals <laughs> or drug deals, right? So the dumb slavish sort of you know mind controlled brainwashed cult people go and kill people and they don't even know what they're up to this is a consistent model uh, in terms of contract killing that i've i've learned about where the, the contract killers themselves sometimes they don't even know what who they're killing and that's better because then people can't get caught right they're doing it for the mafia or something like that but you can do the same thing with a with a patsy in a cult is what i'm trying to say and i think that that a great example of this is the mansons manson and his group I believe there's evidence to suggest just like Berkowitz, they were kind of serving people more powerful, wealthy above them. And they use these idiot, you know, teenagers to go kill people that related to, you know, drug trafficking and contract killing.
Yeah, and I, I remember, I think it was either Vinnie Paz or Army of the Pharaohs, but one of these rap groups had a clip of Son of Sam at the beginning of one of their songs. They're kind of a dark rap group, so this is normal for them. But I remember feeling really strange after listening to what this guy was saying, you know, like the people of New York City were dogs. But then it dawned on me, like, why, if this guy was killing all these people, why would he record himself? Like, was this after, maybe I'm just mistaking it. And it was like, he was in prison when he said this, but to my knowledge, it was like something he did while he was on the loose, which just seems to me like they're kind of creating a scenario. Yeah. They wanted to terrorize people. I mean, part of the, part of the theory about the serial killers is that they were being used to to terrorize they were an experiment in terrorizing the population basically right but why go that extra step and like you know record your voice and potentially you know i don't know maybe it's different now with the internet and he just thought like he could record himself on a tape recorder and no one would find it but it's just strange to think like it just doesn't fit into that motive of like trying to stay you know from getting caught yeah, that's a good question. You have a similar situation with the Zodiac Killer where he calls into a TV show. It's right. Supposedly, it's the Zodiac Killer talking to the TV host. I mean, yeah, I mean, they do have narcissistic personality, you know, traits most of the time, these killers. So they do like to, they're, they're almost impulsively compelled to brag. So that could be one element of it. But yeah, then again, it, it does, it doesn't seem very smart if you're a criminal to do something like that. Yeah. But a lot of times they, they, they do irrational things. That's another weird thing with a lot of these, these serial killers is that, you know, they're, they're not exactly stable people. You know what I mean? They yeah, usually get caught because they, they can't control themselves. Yeah. Well, I mean, and we're living in a society that almost encourages, like you are saying, this kind of depravity that brings people further and further into a state of manipulation and then they become very easy patsies not everyone's like to that extreme but in some right. way or another if you hit your whole life to like one company you know and you live that american dream in a sense you're kind of somebody's patsy you know yeah exactly and i just got a book in the mail that i'm looking forward to reading and it, it reminded me of this and if you if you this is a classic mafia spies and it's very about cool how the CIA was working with Sam Giancana, Momo, the famous Chicago mobster, Santos Traficante, the Florida mobster. I mean, there's just countless instances of, the, of, of these groups working together. And when you understand it from that perspective, it's not hard to believe that there could be a broader kind of social manipulation with a lot of these it's, I mean, think about how these things come in phases, right? Like the seventies, eighties, all these serial killers and then they kind of go away right i mean there's then it's the era of the mass shooting you yeah, know? and then it transitions to the mass shooting. Yeah, exactly and then we have the great psyop of the kufid right coronavirus and all this like <laughs> so it just transitions into these new faith and by the way isn't it nice that all the terrorists like were so uh thoughtful to not do anything during the coronavirus right i mean I'm, yeah when the streets were clear and they would have been perfectly able were, to. exactly right well yeah, I mean, it makes sense, though, if we know that most of these terror operations are actually, you know, run by intelligence agencies and governments. So, so yeah, I think that I think that's a great point is that there's another higher level of what you could see. It might sound crazy to some people like, well, who would ever think this up? Well, if you read Michael Aquino, you could see him thinking that way. You could see him saying 
we can terrorize the population via the serial killer mythology. Now, I'm not saying there's no serial killers, but I'm saying that the story of the serial killer was crafted by the FBI in their serial killer unit that they created in the late 70s. And it it instilled a tremendous amount of fear in the population, just like uh, Spielberg's uh, Jaws, right? People were scared to go swimming, even though the chance of getting bitten by a shark is like one in a million. <laughs> just from watching that goofy movie, right? People were scared to, to go swimming and and with the serial killer you have a similar phenomenon where people think that you know there might i think one time they said there might be 30 serial killers in america and that was like whoa 30 well i mean out of 300 million people i mean even if that is true that's nothing in, in terms of 300 that's like 0.001 right so the idea though that there's a you know a serial killer everywhere it, it's just a mythology but well, on podcasting itself, I mean, go look at any podcasting app of the top charts. It's true crime. Now true crime is, yeah, exactly. True crime. Incredibly dominant. popular. Yeah. And that's why I've been trying to ride that wave of true crime pop by talking about how it's not true. Like most of what you hear is baloney, right? Yeah. Like and the, it's, the profile is baloney. It's so much more fascinating to get into these conspiracy true crimes that have the implications that stretch out further than just like some crazy guy in Ohio did this awful thing. And now we're all going to cry about it for the next 15 years. You know, it's like, it's just really, you know, it, it is that same thing we mentioned with movies where they're trying to traumatize people to create a state of mind. That's more amicable to their agenda, you know? Right. Yeah. I, I think the, most of these serial killers, as we, as you know, they have a history of being in the military. They have probably, in many cases at least, and maybe most cases, military military training as a killer. I mean, we know the military had programs like the Phoenix program to create serial killers, literally. They had already recruited cannibals into that program. I'm not joking. They profiled people in prison who were cannibals to go into the Phoenix program to terrorize the Viet Cong in that war. So, I mean, why would it be surprising if they're doing that, right, to think about the, you know, possibility that many of the serial killers who were in the military <laughs> during that time period, when they come back to America, they're all messed up. I mean, everybody knows about the crazy vet, right? Like the guy who was in Vietnam that's walking down the street, you know, with his shirt off and he's half crazy and you know, everybody has one of these. We have one of those guys in our hometown, right? He just kind of wanders around and he's he's just the, the crazy vet. Well, the reason that there are, quote, crazy vets is because a lot of those people were put into programs and they were messed up. In fact, the, the crazy vet guy in my hometown, he used to say, they did it to me. They put me in this program. They put me in this. Th and everybody, oh, yeah, whatever. Crazy vet, right? But that's actually one of the psyops is that the vets are all crazy, right? And and uh, oh yeah sure uncle sam put you in a program and mind controlled you i'll bet yeah right but they they did <laughs> right they yeah did. no and that's they made forrest gump <laughs> yeah well if you watch that movie it's here we two, go jay two, movie, <laughs> two movies that highlight this is uh apocalypse now because the colonel kurtz character goes nuts i think it's hint it doesn't say fans program but it's hinting at it if you watch lethal weapon 
Mad Dog, the Mel Gibson character who just acts like a lunatic, he actually says, I was in the Phoenix program. That's why I'm so crazy. <laughs> He's like, yeah. I went crazy in the Phoenix program. <laughs> and then one more, there's one other movie. Oh, actually, it's not exactly about the Phoenix program, but if you watch Born on the Fourth of July, I mean, this is kind of what the Tom Cruise character is getting at in that Oliver Stone movie is the point I'm making. Wow. Yeah, no, and, you know, here where we're from in Connecticut, much of a movie industry but skull and bones right down down the way there in new haven and then Mm -hmm. not too far from there i mean in new haven itself kind of the eastern side of town is like this really really italian neighborhood and skull and bones has been you know part of yale for hundreds of years now since 1832 Mm -hmm. and you know I remember a story my grandmother told me about Frank Sinatra kind of rolling through because back in the day, there's a very large connect, you know, big Italian community here in New Haven. So it's just that's not a coincidence. You know, I mean, we've had Chris Milligan on the show. He's talked to us about the Vietnam War as well as Skull and Bones. But I'm curious to know outside of like the Bones, what's the movie Skulls? Is there any movies that you know of? Well, Good Shepherd. Right. So if you watch the Matt Damon, Robert De Niro movie, Good Shepherd, Robert De Niro plays the CIA recruiter who recruits Matt Damon to be kind of the first head of the CIA. So it's when the CIA is new. It's roughly I mean, it's not I don't know that it's based on an actual person, but the story of how the CIA came to be is roughly correct. And so he goes and he's taught intelligence operations by uh, British intelligence. Then he comes back and they kind of form you know the the newly budding cia out of the uh, oss so yeah good shepherd is definitely one to watch and there's a whole scene where he's initiated into skull and bones and that's where he's recruited so yes that does come up in that film there's another film called uh, brotherhood of the belt which is like a weird 70s tv show a tv movie but it's actually worth watching because it's just a stand-in for skull and bones right i mean skull and bones aka brotherhood of the belt and it's telling you everything about how Skull and Bones works. It's, it's actually a really good 70s film. I, I recommend it if you've never seen it. It's kind of a conspiracy classic. Three Days of the Condor is another one in this vein, although that's about the CIA. It's not necessarily about Skull and Bones, but you get the idea if you watch that Robert Redford movie, Three Days of the Condor. So, yeah, that, that, that's just off the top of my head. Those are three pretty good references to Skull and Bones in film. Definitely. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm eager to check those out. What do you think the reason is like like a director would make a film like that? Do you think there's any ulterior motive to that? Or is it truly just kind of like, I guess, for uh, instance, like the Good Shepherd movie that you mentioned, like, why would they make a movie like that if it's going to show some of these like inner workings? Jay, you're muted. Yeah, I don't think they really care about showing that stuff. In fact, predictive programming or showing what you're going to do or right. what's going on is a big part of the propaganda. It's actually a, a technique and an aspect of psychological warfare. It's like gaslighting, basically. So if you watch the movie Gaslight, which is a classic George Cukor film, uh, you'll get the point with that. But I would say, yeah, it, it, there's a good example of this. If you watch that uh, movie called The Recruit with Al Pacino and Colin Farrell, that was a movie literally made in concert with the CIA. So the CIA actually started coming more publicly right after 9-11 with this idea that let's more publicly work to make movies. 
and there are quite a few movies that the CIA has publicly consulted on. In fact, they have they have two movie consultants, Milt Bearden and Chase Brandon. One of those people was probably the basis for the, the the character in Wag the Dog, who's the director who's working with this Robert De Niro CIA person. So yes, I mean, by the way, there are multiple movies where Robert De Niro plays a, a CIA operative, just a side note. But that's another one I, I remember there because Robert De Niro is the CIA guy in Wag the Dog. Um, he's the CIA guy in Good Shepherd. More evidence that I know little to nothing about movies. So, but that's why I love having you on. Well, you're giving said, me wait, a bunch I of places to, think to about start. It for a minute. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but if you watch the movie The Recruit, there's actually a, a docu, like a mini documentary about the movie, and it was the first movie that the CIA openly helped make. Since then, there have been many films that the CIA help, openly helped make. I mentioned Salt with Angelina Jolie as one example. Movies that came out related to things like Zero Dark Thirty. Right, that was a big CIA consulted project. Oh, we got Bin Laden. Right, that was all just <laughs> that was all just a CIA. Literally, the story of Bin Laden was a movie. The movie is the story. Right, uh, I and mean, they'll show you just enough, but it's the way they frame it, the way they context it. They're willing to wave it in your face, but as long as it's like within the right frame, so people can have that narrative reestablished every time they go back to the the theater. This narrative that like, oh, the government's on our side. These guys who use guns and kill people in other countries are on our side. Uh, don't look into where drugs are really coming from. Don't look into what's really going on in public education, you know, or private ev- education where Skull and Bones and other people are recruited through organizations like Skull and Bones. I mean, the Porcelain Club at Harvard, there's probably plenty on the West Coast that filter right into all those Hollywood cults that you're talking about. Scientology itself, I mean, is pretty much, you know, dead in the water cult there's no really other way to describe it yeah, and, started and, with has, and Scientology has been actually booted from other countries because of suspicion of it being a front for intelligence operations so the, this is wow. one of the reasons that Russia removed the Jehovah's Witnesses a lot of Protestant missionaries and Scientologists is because they uh, are and can be fronts for intelligence work yeah, no, and I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses are just, you know, nothing against you folks, but stop knocking on my door. It's really invasive uh, people. You you want to have them on your side if you're trying to control large amounts of people. Or just annoying people. Man. Yeah, oh man, yeah. I have yeah. some family that are Jehovah Witnesses, and, you know, it's kind of crazy that they can't, like, they don't, like, celebrate Christmas or, like... Well, any- speaking of, of... It was influenced by masonry, by the way. Yeah, but where you're at, Chris, I mean, Clearwater, Florida is pretty, you're not near there, are you, Chris? But the. No, no, it's like three hours away. Okay, but that's completely like the whole city's owned by the Scientologists, I'm pretty sure, like to the point where they like kicked everybody out of the downtown. Is that where they have the big landing pad, like a big alien landing pad? For L. Ron Hubbard to come back. All right. Yeah, it's wild. And that guy was involved with Crowley to kind of bring it all back to the, exactly. you know, with the Babylon working. I mean, we're kind of coming towards the end here, but I don't want to end on just saying the Babylon working without getting into it. Jay, would you would you get into that a little bit? Because I know Jay and Chris probably, JP and Chris don't know what the Babylon working is or was. No so in the circles of Crowley were both, as you said, L. Ron Hubbard, Marjorie Cameron, this this weird woman and a guy named Jack Parsons. And Jack Parsons is a famous rocket scientist, right? So he's, if you go to California and you visit, 
the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, it's also known as the Jack Parsons Laboratory, JPL, right? Because he's kind of the father of that chemical rocketry type stuff. And he was an avid devotee of the OTO. So he was in the circles of Crowley. There was a, one of the chapters of the lodges out there. And so there was a sort of dispute, this, this, this spat over women between Parsons and Hubbard with this Marjorie Cameron woman, if I recall. But aside from that, they were, he, Parsons had come up with this idea that he could invoke the end times, the end of the world, the apocalypse, by creating a homunculus and trying to like ritually invoke the harlot of the book of Revelation in Revelation 17, right? The, the woman who rides the beast, 17 and 18. So he came up with this idea to do this ritual. He wrote this, I read the, I read that it's not very long. I read the essay, the Babylon working thing. And it, they thought that they could, you know, tie magical workings into science basically. So that could, because they viewed science as kind of alchemy basically. And the, the ritual didn't go right. I think he ended up dying as a result of this. He got burnt or something blew up or something. Cause he was working with explosives and, but he was involved in incest. I think he slept with his mother, which he thought was a ritual working. Oh my God. What? I think that's right. It's been a while since I looked at the bell and working, but yeah, um, that's, her, that's read, horrible. The book I read on this long, originally a long time ago was, I think it's kind of a rare book out of print. Now, last time I checked, it was like two or $300 to get one, but there's a good book on this called blood on the altar, which is the history of Crowley's cult. And there's a whole chapter on uh, Parsons and the Babylon working. If you're looking for a good account of that but yeah so so that's what went down there and the reason all that's relevant is that they literally thought that they could like invoke the end times with this crazy stuff that they were doing so yeah and that's like that's really pertinent today i mean over the past 20 years it does feel like they've been trying to invoke at end time i mean this apocalyptic christian these ex apocalyptic christian extremists but it's not just christians i mean there's apocalyptic extremists <laughs> on the left these people that are telling you that global warming is uh imminent you know that's that's apocalyptic it is a but... version of apocalypse yeah it's called eminentizing the eschaton right and a lot of cults use this technique of thinking that you know because you hype people up it's like a sensationalism you get them all hyped up thinking oh the world's gonna end tomorrow so you know then you can kind of get them to do stuff that they probably wouldn't otherwise do i mean jehovah's witness is a great example they actually have predicted the end of the world multiple times in the 20th century like 1930s 1944 they had these different dates and then when it would when it didn't happen oh we got to revise our prediction there was the end of the world but it was a spiritual end of the world the physical end of the world will come in the next 20 years right so you just keep kicking the can down the road yeah but that's another version of this is that that cults actually we've done multiple podcasts on i put one actually up pretty recently on rockfin debunking end time stuff where we we investigated a lot of cults that use this end of the world narrative to really you know basically hype people up brainwash them yeah wow well, speaking of end times, it's about time to end this podcast. Jay, it's been a real pleasure having you on, man. I mean, yeah, look, you don't know, time. obviously, you can find you on Rockfin. Where else can they find you? And is there any new work that we can look forward to, a new book on the way, something like that? 
Yeah, I'm working on a couple books, but they're they're a long way out. But if you go to my YouTube channel, you can find a lot of my content. And then yeah, I've been uh, focusing a lot more on Rockfin, putting stuff over there. So you can find me there. And then you can also subscribe to the website, jaysanalysis.com, where I do a lot of talks, lectures, interviews, there's an archive of all of what we've been talking about today and more last five years of that archive, you can access for 495 a month. And you can find me on all the other social medias. That's fantastic. I'm going to be signing up for that tonight. That sounds like a invaluable resource. You can get, if you go to my website, you get signed copies of the book. So that's fantastic. Yeah. Please go to jaysanalysis.com. Don't support Amazon. Don't get, get it, it straight from, from Jay. Yeah, right. Thanks for joining us. And thank you for listening, folks. Have a good night. Mark is bananas. Crazy. Okay. This guy's losing his mind. I'm Don't listen crazy to him. For feeling. So lonely Follow us on patreon.com slash nftic. That's patreon.com slash nftic. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.